join us each week as Andrew, Ray, and others bring us in on one of their weekly phone conversations with an amazing agent. This is Little Oak Weekly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Little Oak Weekly. You've got Andrew Bracewell here. Very excited to share today's guest with you, Anthony DeHaan. I describe Anthony DeHaan as very smart, well-spoken, and well-thought-out. Anthony has come on the show today to discuss what I would describe as risk management for both buyers and sellers in today's challenging market. We get into the nitty-gritty of details of contracts, clauses in contracts, uh, the idea of going subject-free, risk to buyers, risk to sellers, leaning on home inspections, pre-inspections, size of deposits, verifying buyers' capabilities, all of the the things that we are forced into right now on a day-to-day basis when we represent our buyers and sellers, we get into it all, get into it all with Anthony. And Anthony is just, as I said, he's a brilliant guy. He's carved out a great career. His clients love him. He does a great job. And uh, he's a really intelligent thinker. So I trust that you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Enjoy Anthony DeHaan. Hey, Andrew. Good morning. How are you? I am good. I'm just good. adjusting my volume. How's how's my sound on your end? You're good. Yeah, good. Yeah. Are you are you headpiece in or no headpiece? I have headphones in. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Me too. It's it's Tuesday in a crazy market. Are you are you writing any? Uh, are you in any multiple offers or anything like that as we uh, this week? Not at the moment. No, I was last week. I was in a crazy one last week. A one bedroom in Abbotsford. Oh, which that one? Listed at three eighty nine and at Nelson Place in the Edgebrook building there. Oh, I didn't. Yeah, what did that one go for? I didn't see that. It went for a hundred k over asking. Went for four eighty nine. And it's a one bed. One bed. How many square feet was it? Seven fifty ish. So it's a big one bed. Yeah, it had like a small den slash flex space wow. kind of by the by the front door there, but yeah, it was. It was pretty shocking. And the last the agent kind of updated us with the amount of offers was 14. But I don't know if that's where he actually finished, if he ended up getting more or not. But And were you, was your offer like completely blown out of the water or were you close? Yeah, we were blown out of the water. Like going into it, I was expecting it to sell somewhere between 425 and 450. Right. And then once we got upwards of 14 offers, like I advised the buyers, I said, hey, it's at, at this point, you know, it's anybody's guess where it's going to go. Yeah. And yeah, it went for 489. Well, wow. is that their, those people, have they lost out on a bunch or is that their first go at it? This is their second go. And so what's their, um, how do they feel right now? What are they, you know, what's their mindset in this? Uh, frustration, mostly. Like it's two brothers that are buying together. To get a rental or to live together? To get a rental. Got it. And I've prepped them for, you know, what to expect in this mm-hmm. market. And we talked about it a lot. Uh, but yeah, they're just frustrated with the absurdity of it all, I guess. Mm-hmm. No rhyme or reason, no way to actually make like a calculated approach at, at some of these places when you're going up against 15, 20, 25 other people. Uh, a lot of times going against you know, bigger money from further west. Mm-hmm. 
can be frustrating for some young guys from from the valley who just want to get into the market. So, what do you think? Like, you know, I, I guess what am I trying to ask? I'm trying. I'm wondering. I I feel like within the industry, we formulate our own opinions from our chairs based at like you know we're we're in it we're realtors what do you think the public like what's an ex- these guys as an example or, or someone else that you know what are they seeing as the problem like what are the what conclusions are they drawing from this and how do they think the the world can be fixed or inventory can be fixed yeah so for, for these particular buyers and i think for for most buyers as well they they don't really see a solution they don't mm. really understand why things are happening uh they just know that they are and so they'll make these they'll come to these conclusions oh this is ridiculous or how are we ever supposed to buy in this place am i going to be forced to move to alberta at some point in my life you know those types of of conclusions but a lot of them do understand that it's a supply and demand issue because they're looking for homes and they see how few homes are coming up that fit their criteria Mm-hmm. Um, they understand that part of it. Uh, there's also this feeling like this market's never going to end. Mm-hmm. It's always going to be like this. And I, I understand that, especially for younger people. We've been in this market now for, what, six, seven years? Yeah, I mean, basically since two thousand, the end of 15, the market really started to heat up. And then we had a little blip in 19 when, uh, you know, Christy Clark came up with her taxes. Right. But I think it was 19. I don't know, whatever that year yeah. that was. Yeah. And uh, and then yeah, that's that's basically it. You're, we've basically been going one direction, except for a little blip uh, since 2015. Right. Yeah. And so when you're dealing with with some buyers who are maybe in their early 20s, you know, it's been like this for a, as long as they've really had even an, an interest in real estate mm-hmm. in their lives. Right. So they yeah. they feel like this is just how things are always going to be, and nobody knows how long things will be like this or how things will change when they do change. But I think we in the industry would all agree that change is inevitable. The market will not always be like this. Mm-hmm. It will change at some point. But yeah, I think there's a sense of, of, of hopelessness for mm-hmm. uh, some of these, these younger people who, yeah, feel like they might not be able to stay in the valley. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, gotta be, it's certainly got to be deflating to... Um... To not have a stake in real estate and be watching what's happening, feeling like you know you're you're chasing a train that you possibly you just can't possibly catch. Yeah. Uh, but I'm curious, I, I you know you can you hear the 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 outrage or the um, you know the anger about it. But I'm always I I I always want to take it kind of a step further and say, well, what do what do people what are they blaming this on, or what do they think the solutions are? Because you know I feel as though that some of the things that we hear are <laughs> our governmental leaders talking about aren't necessarily solutions. And so I'm curious, like, what does, you know, what does the public think? What does that 28 year old think who's trying to buy a first place or, or, you know, and, and I haven't, I haven't heard a, any clear comments. I just hear, I just hear frustration and, you know, this level of defeatedness or feeling of defeatedness, I should say. Yeah, I would agree. I hear, I hear a lot of that as well. I think people think, okay, for those who are in the market already, they've got such an advantage because their home has accumulated so much equity over the past few years that, and, and they're right. It's relative for them, right? If, they, if the market goes up and they want to, they want to move, then 
even though they might struggle to find a home to move to, they've got the money in their existing totally home in order to do that. It really doesn't. I mean, I don't want to say it doesn't matter, but in some ways it doesn't matter. If you've if you've already got yeah. an inflationary asset and you're just trying to move to something else, you might be choosing to spend more money. Like if you're upsizing, you're upsizing. That's your choice. You know, if the market's inflating and you've already got your piece of it, then then at least you're along for the ride. You're not watching it happen without you. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. This is this I I wanted to this is well, we 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 kind of meandered here and I wanted to what I wanted to talk to you about today was um I'll, I'll say, you know, we'll call it risk avoidance or managing risk in this environment for both buyers and sellers. I, I see you as an individual who's, you know, you've navigated certainly the last number of years very, very well. You're, you've, you've carved out a successful career and you've got people that love you and you do a great job for them and, you know, all of the right things and you've done it successfully in a challenging environment. However, I want to say before we get into that, I wanted to bring up something completely different than that, um, just because if, if I don't now, then I fear we'll, we'll forget it or we won't get into it. I just wanted to do a quick, I don't know, retake on the flooding that we experienced and just how you look back on that. Now, you were, you know, you were quite involved there in those moments and directly impacted by it, by, by you know, virtue of where you live and where your community is. What's the feeling now, you know, we're a little bit removed and, you know, the world's moved on. Um, what's happening at Barrowtown Pump Station, what's the feeling of living in Yarrow? Are, is this just kind of like forgotten and everyone moves on, or are people like, oh, geez, we got big problems, we got to fix, and and this is nowhere off our radar? But give me your your maybe your take on that. Yeah, good question. It's it's really interesting. I think you're going to get a different answer from people who live in Yarrow and the Sumas Flat um, or East Abbotsford compared to somebody who, who doesn't live there and was maybe on the outside looking in. Totally, and yeah. how long the the effects of the floods linger in people's minds who live there versus how long it lingers in people's minds who were on the outside looking in. But yeah, here, I mean, there's still very much evidence of the damage that was done. I used to have friends in Sumas Prairie uh, and people that I know through church and things like that in my life that are still still recovering. They're still mm -hmm. working on their house. It's going to be months yet before their repairs are completed, but there's definitely still a, a big sense of community out there and a lot of people who are, are helping these people rebuild, uh, taking care of them during these times. Mm. Yeah, when it comes to Barrowtown, I, I don't know too much about what's going on there at the moment. I know Steve Abbotsford got approved, I think, to add a generator to Barrowtown's so, you know, electrical failures will hopefully right. be something that is... We don't have to worry about. Don't, ha don't have to worry about. Yeah, exactly. But overall, I mean, you just drive down Highway 1 and you can still just, just see the damage that was done to some of the farmer's field, yeah. uh, where, especially where the dike blew out. I mean, it's just still a big, a big mud pit, essentially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that's probably going to take till spring before they can really start working on that and fix that. So is there... Like, does this change people's desire, you think, to live out on the flats at all? I mean, ultimately, yeah. this comes around maybe even to more of a real estate-related question. Obviously, you know, like, what will, what could this potentially do to, to the market for properties like that? But, or do you think that it's just, it's farmland, it's how people view it, and the land needs to be farmed, and while this was tragic, you know, everyone just moves on and goes right back to what they were doing? I think for the people who live there, that is 
the mentality. Absolutely. I, I think even more so than that. I think the people who live there want to live there even more than they did before. Hmm. Uh, this has shown them who their neighbors are. This has shown them who their community is. They're rebuilding their homes now. They're rebuilding their homes with their families and pouring their, their heart into their properties even more so than they did before. Hmm. And I think that's igniting this desire that this is my home. I fought for it. And now it's even more my home than it was before. Wow. For people outside, yes, I 100% think that at the moment, interest in these areas that are in the flood zone has dropped. Hmm. I listed a place at the end of the year in Yarrow, and I would say 80% of the calls that I fielded on this property yeah. were directly related to flooding questions, flood zone concerns, insurance concerns, all of that. Yeah, that was a nice home. You and I talked about that. That was on that was yeah. on Euro Central. So did that yeah. like that in no doubt in your mind that, that that was negatively impacted then? Yes, it was. <clears throat> I still believe we got fair market value for the home when it sold. Mm -hmm. uh, the sellers did well in it. There was still enough interest in Yarrow to generate multiple offers and get the price point that we had expected pre-flood. Got it. But it, it was it, there would have been more interest definitely if the if the floods didn't happen. And what I'm really curious about is how long that will linger in people's minds. I, I have other clients that I've just started working with and I, I go through the process of, you know, where do you want to buy and how much do you want to spend and all of these things. And I'm still hearing now, you know, Anthony, we're not interested in any flood zones. We're not interested in Masque, Sumac, really? Flats, Glen Valley, none of that. Hmm. Uh, keep us out of the flood zone. Interesting. And yeah. what are you, what's the latest? I I don't work with a lot of people. Well, any people, I should say. I don't want to say any. I mean, I haven't done nothing, but I, I'm not often down in, in those zones. What's the talk amongst the insurance companies right now with, you know, what they're doing and what they're not doing? Yeah. So essentially you can get, you can get insurance um, in the area, I know there was a, a time there where it was going to be tough to get insurance uh, anywhere kind of in the yeah, East. Yeah, they locked it down. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that was all to do with the state of emergency and the disaster zone. Mm -hmm. Kind of, they red, red flagged the whole area. Mm -hmm. um, I know that has gotten better since we've moved past that. But even during those times, there were insurance agencies that were able to help out, which was really nice as well to know and mm -hmm. to get in touch with a few of those uh, different insurance agents that could find insurance, even when we sold the house on Euro Central, it was quite fresh after the flooding. And we had a couple uh, insurance brokers, you know, on call to help out any potential buyers who were not having any luck finding insurance. Hmm. Okay. Um, on the flip side, being in the flood zone, unfortunately means that you are going to struggle to get flood insurance and not necessarily to get it, but you're just going to be limited in the amount that they'll cover you for. Got it. Uh, and, and a lot of people might not even realize that when they live in, in the flood zone. But if you look into your insurance, you might find out, oh, hey, we do have flood insurance, but it's only going to give us $20,000. Sure. Yeah. The small, the small print. People were maybe less likely or less aware of the small print before than they are today. Yeah. 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 And those types of things is why... Yeah, it's so nice to actually investigate those questions with an insurance broker if you are in that situation. So that you fully understand uh, what, what your insurance is going to do for you mm -hmm. in the time of a disaster. Got it.
Uh, I want to circle back now to the, what we started with this environment, the, you know, the, the competitive nature, um, you know, obviously the, uh, the story that you shared with missing out on the Edgebrook condo is, you know, exactly what we're talking about. Cause I, I can imagine that in a scenario like that, you wrote a completely subject free offer and, you know, you guys still lost out, but in this context and environment, for both buyer and seller, we're we're walking people through situations where there is just inherently more risk uh, that that people are taking on today than than they ever have, at least in in my time and in comparison to any other normal market. So, in light of that, what I was you know what I'd like to kick around with you is just the specifics of how you're dealing with that in your your language and how you explain things and and how you know you view maybe you know a first time buyer versus somebody more seasoned and then maybe also get into like some areas where you know you might draw a hard line and say okay this is a no go zone for me there might be people who are willing to take on this type of risk or encourage their clients to take on that risk but i certainly you know can't endorse that so maybe we'll just start with how do you is there some habits or some tendencies that you've adopted in the recent history here where you've got people going subject free uh, that you're doing now that you were never doing before in, in that context? Absolutely. It's almost a requirement now, which is a really interesting thing just to say. I, the way I approach it, especially with a first time home buyer, even with people who, who are seasoned or who have, you know, done multiple real estate transactions in their life. It's different now than it was like we talked about seven years ago. So if somebody hasn't done a real estate transaction in these past seven years, Mm. even though they know the market is crazy, they don't fully understand it. I find until they're in it Mm. and it takes, takes that for them to realize. So what I, I do pretty much with everyone when I first meet with them and have the discussion about buying a property, I, I prep them on exactly how the market is and in exactly what they're going to experience. Mm. Um, I have a good long conversation with them. I use stories from existing clients Mm -hmm. and, and talk them through those stories. Say, this is what happened in this situation. This is what happened in this situation. These are things that you need to expect. Mm -hmm. And then, so I, I try to prep their mind that way. And I still do find that until they're, they experience it, they don't fully necessarily grasp what I'm saying to them, it depends on the person. But then in regards to risk, I, I still approach a real estate transaction the same way I always did. And I go through the same things I always did. Okay, explain. What do you mean by that? We, we used the same contract that we did in, in 2015. Sure. And with that, we had our, you know, our five typical subjects in there, your, your financing title, PDS, mm-hmm. insurance, mm-hmm. inspection. And that's still how I write offers for people. And that's still how I, I advise them to, to put an offer in. And then I explain to them the reality of today's market in which what things in the contract are going to potentially lose them the property or, or not make them the successful bidder sure. in regards to yeah. the subjects that are in there and things like that. But I still go through it the same way as I did before. And I still explain the contract in the same way so that they understand what they're writing. And then when I, when I explain to them about not having subjects in there and taking those things out, then I explain to them also at the same time what risks they're taking on by doing that. So then 
in the in the let me break let me just get a specific question to that because I think this is where what some people I don't want to say struggle with I mean everyone's had to adopt ad, you know ad, adapt here and do this but I do think that there's difference in the skill of individual agents and how they communicate these things and so if you're selling I'll just let's use an example uh, 19 you know you're writing an offer on a 1980s BC box okay so not something built in 2016 but something that is you know, clearly not modern construction. What's the, how are you framing the lack of inspection conversation? Because, you know, clearly in that situation, I mean, you know, assuming it's a normal home built in the 80s and it hasn't been completely renovated, there's got to be an expectation that the home is not in perfect condition. So how do you talk through that piece with your clients to have them understand the risk? And then ultimately they might even be putting a number to the risk, or maybe not, but I'm wondering, like, are you, are you helping them attach a number to the risk so that they're prepared for certain costs that they're maybe not going to discover, you know, a, with a normal inspection prior to writing? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And that's definitely something, I mean, it, it, that in itself can be difficult because in many cases right now, you're even limited to your 15 minutes in the house. <laughs> So to even this identify, is 15 minutes, yeah, figure like, everything out, go. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And to identify where there's potential problems can, can be difficult. The, the big stuff is, is what I try to focus their attention on. We take a look at the furnace. We try, we will know some information about the roof uh, from the listing agent, um, checking out the windows, that sort of thing. And then, yeah, talking to them about what an inspector would do in an inspection, how they can, you know, use their, their expertise to identify, um, you know, a poorly constructed or poorly installed piece of equipment, um, how they have devices that can detect water behind walls, you know, different things that mm -hmm. we're not going to see when we're in the house and that they need to be prepared that if they're not going to do an inspection, that they may discover an issue like this down the road and they, they need to be able to financially afford to, to fix it mm -hmm. if mm -hmm. they do find something like that. And that is essentially the risk that they are taking on. And I find it really interesting that you asked about like a dollar amount in regards to, to that. And I, I took it as you asking like, do they have like a fund to cover that fix if they were to discover it? Yeah, it's, it's I, that. Well, let me just, I'll expand on it and then you can, and then I'll let you go on it. So what I, what I mean is, so there's that, there's an element there where it's like, yes, do you, you know, in a worst case scenario, do you have the money to deal with these things? But also I'm, I mean, and maybe this is just my own uh, strategy leaking into the question that I'm asking of you, but I have found that when you're in this scenario, you can help people conceptualize the risk by putting some numbers to the conversation. Obviously these are not scientific numbers, right? Like, but, but you can do something. So like, you know, you walk around, you know, you shake the change in your, in your pocket and you go, okay, let's pretend a scenario where the furnace needs a complete overhaul, maybe not replacement, but like, let's say $1,500 on a furnace, you know, repair. And then you go around the house and you do all these things. And then you go like, okay, worst case scenario, we just came up with $12,000 of things that we're not going to know for sure, but it's a possibility. Is that, like, do you go through that process at all? Or how are you helping a consumer conceptualize the risk that they're taking? Absolutely. 
Absolutely, I'll I'll, uh, I'll help them with that and put putting numbers on things, which I find actually in the past few months or six months it has become increasingly difficult because of inflation. Right, because um, of the cost of to, things. Yeah, like before I, I, I used to just be able to throw numbers out of people and it'd be like a conservative number for a new furnace is this, you know, hot water tank, you're here. And now I, in my head as well, I'm always thinking, okay, like what actually are furnaces at at the moment? Now? Do, you mean in, are, do you mean inflation or just inflation? I'm just asking. Yeah, yeah, just inflation. <laughs> just inflation, okay. And that part makes it more difficult, but you also learn as you go. I mean, you know, okay, this client's actually putting a new roof on their house right now. Hey, give them a call. What did that end up costing you for a new roof at this point in time? And what were your lead times on getting a roofing company in? Yeah. Or, or them getting materials to re-roof your house. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and, and constantly learning and keeping your eye out for people who are doing these types of home projects mm. and finding out the information so that you can be relevant to your clients when they ask those kinds of questions, even though I know things are, are changing so quickly right now, especially with the trades. That's an excellent point, though. That is a very good point. You're right, because Having, if you've got information from nine months ago, like a renovation that you had intimate information on nine months ago, it's different today. It's way different. Yes. Cost of everything is yeah. different. Yeah. Yeah. Cost, lead times. I, I mean, uh, we've seen it ourselves, even on the, the Remax pages, right? Where, where some agents in our office will say, hey, I'm looking for a dry, drywaller or yeah. a painter. And, yeah. and my clients, they're not even getting callbacks from these, these tradespeople anymore. Um, cause they're just so heavily busy they're, they're, they don't even have the time to call people back for these smaller jobs. Mm. It can be very tough to find a, a, a plumber or a painter or a roofer right now. They're, they're all small. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, lead times I think is a, is a big, a big part of it as well. I actually have a friend whose furnace went a couple weeks ago in their house and they're still waiting for a new furnace to be installed oh, in the middle of the winter. Wow. So there's just not even a there's not even a unit available. Well, yeah, yeah, and the company was supposed to come that first week, never came, and the company was supposed to come last week, never came, and it's just being delayed, delayed. And thankfully, they have some some plug-in heaters that they have throughout their house, so they're sure. they're staying warm and fine. But yeah, yeah, there's just a delay, and and then and then yeah, the demand for the actual units as well. I know that there were uh, people talking just again going back to the floods when you have kind of this mass devastation that takes out you know, who knows how many homes. They all need drywall. They all need, you know, new appliances. They all need furnaces. And, and that puts extra strain on an already strained market for all of these things. Mm. So, yeah, it, it, it constantly has, has an effect. I, I was talking to a farmer the other day just about tractors. I, I guess it's nearly impossible to get a tractor mm -hmm. right now as a farmer. So, yeah, the, the demand for these things that, that just a short while ago I don't want to say we took for granted, but they, they were just always there and now they're not. And that can have a direct effect on somebody who buys a house or who just owns a house mm. and has an issue to be up to date on that. I think adds value. Absolutely. How do you feel about your buyer relying on a pre-inspection paid for by a seller? Um, <laughs> I, if that inspection was done like recently, like, okay, these people are going to, well, yes, yeah, let's say these, something that's been done within the, like within two weeks, like not something from six months ago. Right. But like yeah. something that's current. Yeah. 
in a big picture way, I think it would be great. Any information is good information, and it's more information than we had the day before. Sure. Um, I, I will encourage sellers to do a pre-inspection yeah. um, in today's market for that reason. But yes, I, I will explain it to them. They weren't the ones who hired the inspector, all of those types of things, but an inspection was done. And they can use it for their information and take it for what it is. But you, you kind of treat it than, treat it like a PDS, right? It's yeah. it's more information than you had before, but you can't necessarily assume that it's gospel truth because there's there's some variables there. Is that is that fair and accurate? I think that's that's fair. Yes. We we often you know we talk about these things a lot from the buyer perspective. Granted, because it's incredibly you know, frustrating from the buyer perspective and buyers do take on, you know, an obscene or not obscene, an unnatural amount of risk, maybe you could say in this environment. But sellers are also taking on unique risks as well in that, you know, there's risk in, you know, you could have 14 offers in front of you and you could have buyers frothing at the mouth, willing to do, you know, what can seem like crazy things to buy a home with crazy amounts of money, but it's sitting in the chair of the seller, you know, this, this presents a unique thing where, you know, just because you got somebody willing to do something that looks good on paper, doesn't necessarily mean that that's the best buyer to work with. So what do you do? How do you, how do you talk through that with your clients when you're in the chair of, you got 14 offers in front of you, how are you talking through the different buyers, who they are, the strength of the buyer, and the potential risks in dealing with a buyer who maybe can't do or shouldn't be doing what they're offering? Yeah, that's a good question. So a lot's going to fall on what's in the given contract that you received, even your, your understanding of who you're dealing with. Yes, you get the letters and you get information from the other realtor, but who are you dealing with on the other side? Who is the buyer who wants to buy your house? Mm-hmm. It, it's definitely something that is, is spoken about. And yes, what's in that contract? What is the seller agreeing to? What kind of risk are they taking on? Is definitely something that I go through with the seller for all the different offers that are presented in front of them. And I, I found it I found it interesting before I was going to touch on this when you're talking about the inspection done from the buyer yeah. or a non-inspection done by a buyer. And you know, the costs associated with potential things going wrong in the house. Yeah. I've also had situations where I've discussed with buyers the cost associated with keeping the inspection clause in the contract. Oh, interesting. So, you know what? They are just set on having that inspection done. They aren't going to buy a house without an inspection. And so I'll ask them, you know, what is that inspection worth to you? Mm-hmm. And if they were to be buying a house for a million dollars and or we figured it was going to go around the million dollar mark and they were in a situation where the seller wanted to work with them, but wanted them to drop the inspection and they didn't want to do that. I will, I'll ask them these questions. Would you be willing to increase your offer by $10,000 to keep an inspection in there? Yep. Would you be willing to increase it by $20,000 yep. to keep your inspection in there? Yep. And, and giving them the value on the flip side essentially buying their buying their inspection clause from totally. Mr. And Mrs. Seller. So actually great great point. Let me just let me give you an example of that from the other perspective. I have been recently involved in a scenario 
where I'm repping the seller and there was a buyer that had an inspection clause. Offer was, was the best offer, okay? But they had an inspection clause. The seller goes, I want to know that my home sold today. Like, you know, we went through this whole process. We got a million offers in front of us. I, I don't want to wait around for three days. It was important to them to know home was sold now. So we, exactly what you're explaining, we went back to the buyer and we said, what is this worth to you? And, you know, they were confused at first. We're like, like, what do you think you're going to find here? Do you think you're going to find, what are you trying to protect yourself against? $4,000 of things, $5,000 of things, $10,000 of things. And when it all boiled up, came down to it, the, the buyer went subject free and took the clause out for, I think it was about $6,500 or $7,000. And to the seller, it was worth it. Like they were mm -hmm. like, no brainer. I'll take less money. I want to know my home sold. And the buyer went, okay, you know what? Whatever risk I was taking on, it's worth the six or seven grand. So everybody was happy. But that's that's the opposite side of the conversation of what you're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it makes a lot of sense. I think it makes makes a lot of sense in the right in the right situation. Yeah. Well, and then going back to going back to a seller's risk. However, you want to identify risk. A buyer comes in and has you know the best offer has subject to inspection, and. So you're looking at it like in your situation and well, what's the risk for the seller in that scenario? You know, Anthony, we have, we have a great offer here yet yeah, subject to inspection. It's going to hold us up for, for four days and then we can, we can move on. So is that your risk? Is that my risk, Anthony? I'm just going to be put out for four days before, you know, my anxiety mm -hmm. can calm down and I know that I have a sold sticker on there. Right. Well, there's, there's more, there's more to it. What if something is discovered in the inspection? What if the buyers get cold feet and decide to back out using the inspection clause? Totally. And now you go back to, you know, your, the buyers in second place. And at that point, you know, they've actually put an offer on another house and they're gone and it kind of, it sets you back. Now this market in that way is quite forgiving. You can maybe get away with still doing very well on your house, even though a first offer fell apart. But there's there's risk there, and I think that's why sellers love the idea of the subject free offer Absolutely. because they can sign the paper and get rid of all of that, all of the risk of a deal falling apart in today's today's world. Yeah, but yeah, I, I think that's that's just one example of of risk for a seller. There's different things that people will put in in contracts that will heighten the risk for a seller. Or, or lower the risk for a seller. But yeah, I find that there's different ways of, of looking at risk as well. Uh, a lot of times when people want to move from, from A to B, they want to sell home A and move to home B, and they'll say to me, okay, Anthony, how do, how do we do this in today's market? Uh, you know, we want to go look at home B, and if we like it, we want to put an offer on it, but we want to make it subject to the sale of home A. Yeah. And I'll, I'll explain to them how that's not going to work in today's, <laughs> in today's market. And then they'll say, okay, well, well, what are my other options then? And they'll say, okay, well, you can either, you can buy home B, you know, and push out your dates by, mm -hmm. by three months and sell home A in the meantime, we'll line up your dates and we'll have everything, you know, complete in a matter of a series of days and move you into your new home. Well, what happens if my home doesn't sell? What happens if I'm the one holding the hot potato when the market decides to cool? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, there's, there's risk there. Okay, what's another scenario? Well, you could you could list home A and sell it and then go find home B. Well, 
what's my risk there? Well, your risk is you sell home A for X amount of dollars. You struggle to find home B because inventory is so low. Market and inflates in meantime, while you're out of the market. Exactly. In the meantime, yeah. home B is getting more and more expensive. Yeah. And your home A has already a set price. You sold it. Mm-hmm. So now you're chasing again, and that's going to cause anxiety. It's mm-hmm. like, okay, what's another option? Well, what if we sold home A, but we made it subject to us finding home B? Have you done that recently? No. Because I, pe- I mean, that. like people, like agents, like hate that, right? Because oh. it's, it's, oh, but it's a it's a real strategy like it can it can work like i've seen it work it it is it is a it's tricky but for some people i think that they land on like that's the only path forward for them right because they just can't envision one of the other options i understand it fully from a seller's perspective i even know i even know sellers who will say like anthony you're you're warning me that this may uh, decrease the amount of buyers that are willing to put an offer in my house. Like that's okay with me. This is safe to me. And I understand that mindset as a buyer in today's market, going after a home that is subject to those sellers finding a new home, mm-hmm. I think could be extremely detrimental to them being successful in this, in this market. Oh, yeah. And the, the issue for that is, and I'll explain this. When buyers send me a house, say, Anthony, can we take a look at this house? And I see in the realtor comments that it's subject, it's going to be, they want it to be subject to the seller finding a new yeah, home. Yeah. I will actually advise them to stay completely away from that house. And I explain to them like this. I say, if you go and you, you love this house, you fall in love with this house, you say, aunt, we want to write an offer. I say, okay, let's write an offer. And we throw an offer in and it's subject to the sellers finding another place. And you win the bid. You're the successful person. And you didn't have any other subjects in there or maybe you did you threw in a subject yourself which would maybe be a, a wise thing right because you're you, you, i see your concern your concern is that they're locked in they can't go anywhere and they're completely at the will of the sellers correct and and three months go by the sellers don't find a house six months go by and then the sellers just decide you know what this market's too crazy for us we're going to back out now these buyers have missed out on six months of buying potential mm-hmm yeah, that's that's fear, and of course, you could add something in the contract that allows the buyers to potentially back out as well. Um, and now or, you've just got li- a fake contract for everybody because now you've just yes. you've created something that everybody can walk from at any time, and it's like, why are we even yes. doing this? Right. Yeah. So yeah, it's something that I definitely um, advise against from uh, a buying perspective, and from a selling perspective, I will caution against it. I like I said, I understand it, mm-hmm. but I. I caution, I caution against it. And just because it's going to limit the amount of people that are going to be interested in your home and have a direct effect, most mm-hmm. likely on the sell price of your home as well. I did it successfully recently, uh, but quite recently, like within the last few months. But, you know, there, you got to get more context to the story. And so what happened was, is there was a seller who they knew what they wanted to buy. It's not like they didn't know what they wanted. They had their eye on something specific. They couldn't write a subject to sale offer on what they were trying to buy because those people wouldn't take it. So then what we did was we went to market, we got an offer, we said up front to the buyer, hey, we want to buy that home right there. We know we can, and we know that the negotiation is not going to be a problem. We just need to be able to bring these guys an offer that isn't subject to the sale of our home. So we created this domino effect where the buyer gave us, you know, 
a couple of weeks to go and lock that thing down. Of course, the whole thing is contingent on the sale and everything's all happening at one time. But it wasn't like, oh, we need to be subject to finding something and we haven't even started the process. We want to be subject to finding something and we even know which home we want to buy and we're pretty sure we can go get it right now. And so it all worked out and the buyer was put out only maybe an extra week to make it all come together. But that was in the context of the seller having already found what they wanted to buy and it was available for them to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually in one like that in the fall on the buying side. Still very tricky. Like it's hard to fend angle all that stuff. Like there's a lot of moving parts there, right? And in this particular case, we had properties in multiple communities, different parts of British Columbia. We got multiple agents involved and everyone's just trying to keep everything lined up and working properly and everybody protected at the same time, right? So there's a lot of coordinating that needs to go on in those contracts. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of communication. Yes. And I think that, like, that that open communication between the other agents that you're dealing with gives you, as an agent, a certain level of trust that things are going to flow the way they're supposed to flow as well. 100%. Which is, is a huge, just a huge, you know, plus for, for the agent that, that you're working with. And I will I will make sure to compliment that agent if that is the case, that it's because of their great communication skills that, you know, we have the confidence as buyers to continue to move forward with it. Because, mm. yeah, I did deal with that in, in the fall. The buyers I was working with went through on the, on the purchase of a home that was subject to the sellers buying another property. But the agent was great that we were working with on the other side. She's from our office, actually. And she communicated very well, even though she wasn't working with those sellers to buy their next home because right. they were they buying were with another agent somewhere else. Okay. Yes, they in a different part of BC. Mm. So she had to communicate from both sides. She had to tell us what was going on with the agent from you sure. know the interior. Yeah. Uh, and, and she did a great job. And there were a couple little hiccups in their buying process, but they were very clear on what they wanted. Exactly what you explained. Your sellers had. Yeah. These sellers knew what they wanted, and they went and they got it. Yeah. And I think same thing for us. It maybe delayed the buyers I was working with by a week or 10 days sure. before they had a firm deal. Which is reasonable. And, and That's not crazy. Totally. Yeah. Totally reasonable. Yeah. Drop drop the name. Who was it? Who's the skilled agent who handled it? Christy Rutherford. Of course, Christy. There you go. Yeah. Shout out to Christy. Yeah. yeah, she was great. Okay. There's one more thing uh, before I, I, I know we're getting lengthy on time here, but I wanted to ask you one more thing all related to this. Um, and I'm, I'm quite enjoying every one of your answers. So um, I'm having fun. So again, sitting in the cell, you're repping the seller. Do you think we do enough to, do we put enough weight on deposit or, or let me word this differently. So in an environment where you got, again, multiple offers, you got buyers doing what can be seen as, you know, obscene or crazy things in terms of, you know, blowing up the, the, the cost of the home and coming over the top. Should we look at deposits differently and put more weight on them? And should we be doing more to like verify funds and or verify financing? Because I don't see that happening. I've experienced it both on the buyer side and on the seller side, but I don't, I don't see this as like a standard thing. And I, I wonder if like, hey, you know what, if we're, if we're really looking out for our sellers, should we be doing more with those things to make sure that the buyer is in fact capable of what they're saying they're capable of? Yeah. The first part, the deposit part, uh, I think absolutely we should be putting more weight on, on the deposit um, in, a, in a market like this. Like a 5% deposit is nothing. No, 
You know what I mean? Like 1.5, like, you know, a home that got listed for 1.2 and then sells for 1.5, 70 grand doesn't seem like a lot it, if, know, if things go sideways. Correct. I agree. But it's a very interesting, interesting comment because I think 70 grand to some people sure. is, is, is life a changing. Lot. So, yeah. Right. And, and I don't even necessarily mean a seller, I mean the buyer who's putting the $70,000 deposit down. No, I know. And they're, you're saying some people would never walk from 70, right? right? And you're saying to other people, to the right person, they'd walk from 70 in a blink of an eye. Right. And it's how do you determine who you're dealing with? Exactly. And yeah, so, so, and that's where weight of deposit, when I think of weight of deposit, it's not purely just a high number. It's what that number means to that buyer. Hmm. Because that essentially tells you their commitment to it. So in having those discussions, of course, I, I would never say to a seller, oh, you know, they're putting a $5,000 deposit down. And you know what? $5,000 is everything they have in their bank account. So I don't think that they're, you know, ever going to walk away from this deal. No, I, I think there's, there's reality in, in there as well. Um, and, and what a decent deposit is in the market that we're in. Mm-hmm. But it's that versus what that deposit means to those people. And like you said, what work was done by those buyers beforehand in their pre-approval process. Well, and so, and, and let me expand on that. So here's the reality of like 99% of buyers right now, I don't care who you are or what you're buying or the price point, nobody has their financing lined up when they're writing these subject-free deals. Mm-hmm. Like we know this to be true because you know, for a lot of time throughout last year, banks and lenders couldn't get stuff approved faster than three or four weeks. Uh, there wasn't enough lead time. So, you know, that's why I'm wondering, like, you know, should should we be doing something more in the way of like some type of verification? Like, I don't know. I mean, people would feel like maybe it's an infringement on 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 privacy. But if somebody's saying they can spend $1.7 million for a house and it's 300 k over an asking price and they're the winning bid, if we're protecting our sellers or trying to protect our sellers, what can we do? Well, financing's not been confirmed. We know that. They don't have it done. So then we know that with a $1.7 million purchase, there's got to be at least a $400,000 down payment and maybe and probably even more. So should we be asking to verify that? Well, what if that, what if that down payment is tied up in the current home that they own? Right. And I know that I'm not, I realize what I'm suggesting here is like mm-hmm. tricky and tough, but I'm, I just, you know, we're in, we're in territory here that we've never been. Mm-hmm. And if we want to make sure on the, from the seller side of the table that we're committing to a contract that is, number one, enforceable, number two, has somebody on the other end that can actually follow through, what else can we do? Like, if we know financing's not been confirmed, because it, it couldn't have been, then what can we do to have peace of mind that we're dealing with somebody where we're not going to have an issue? And I mean, yeah. this is, I, I realize what I'm suggesting is not easy, but I'm, I'm throwing it out there because I, I, I watch these things occur and I go, man, like there's just a lot of, there's a lot of good faith that goes on in this process, but good faith doesn't mean anything when you got a buyer in default, right? Yeah. I, I, I think to your original point, again, I, I think the, the deposit is a huge, huge part of that. Yeah. And to, and to push a buyer to get a higher deposit I don't think it's a bad move at all to protect your seller in case the deal does fall apart. And like you said, if you're spending a lot of money, you're going to need a lot of money. So the proof is in the pudding and that's going to be your 
deposit. Outside of that, what is credible? Like you had mentioned earlier, talking about the inspection, a pre-inspection done by the seller. And as a buyer, when you're reading it, you know, take it with a grain of salt. No, it's not gospel truth. There's certain things that, you know, you you don't know if they're 100% accurate. Mm -hmm. You didn't buy the inspection. Um, and, And that's how you're fielding this kind of conversation or question as well. You know, how do we know that this buyer has the money? Yeah. And, you know, they told us that, well, you know, the bank has essentially pre-qualified them for X amount of dollars and, you know, they have this and that going on in their lives or, Hey, that one that I hear often right now. And actually I kind of do like as an agent is, you know, mom and dad are willing to be involved. Totally. Um, if, if, if the financing, you know, even though we're pre-approved and we're ready to go, we don't think we're going to have an inch of financing trouble. Mom and dad are there as a backup to co-sign. Totally. Um, I like that. And then you take it a step further and go, mom and dad are there to co-sign. And oh, by the way, mom and dad are also my clients and I've known them for 10 years or 15 years. Like there's just, there's a ton of relational equity there. Yes. And to your original point, is there, is there anything substantial or concrete that you can bring with a comment like that to your sellers that gives them, you know, more affirmation that this deal is going to go through? Uh, no. So there, there is a certain amount of good faith, like you mentioned, that needs to exist, I think, in today's market. Mm-hmm. And, but yeah, to, how, do you, how do you get something more concrete or more actual or affirmative? I I don't know. I don't know besides the deposit. And like you said, I mean, if you dig further, you know, maybe that's too invasive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but maybe becoming more invasive is, is going to be the future of, of real estate, to be, to make yourself vulnerable to Mr. and Mrs. Seller and, and show them your books and say, this, this is us, this is, this is me. Uh, we can afford to do this, and we're willing to be as vulnerable as, and open as possible to you to prove that. I, I don't know. In in well, here let's put it. Put, I'll put it to you another way. In commercial real estate world, when you get into um, significant transactions, it is totally understood amongst all parties that part of the process in doing a deal prior to being you know subject free and binding is that the buyer shows the seller that they're worthy. And what I mean by worthy is financially capable of pulling off the deal. Like that is, that's a part of due diligence that is standard in commercial real estate. And so we've never had it to that depth in the residential world, but with more money at stake and more risk on the table, I think these types of things become more relevant. Well, in the commercial world, would you see that same practice continued if buyers were writing subject-free offers? Oh, you'll get scenarios with, um, you know, whether and whether you're talking about, you know, whatever, you can talk about a strip mall, you can talk about a, you know, a, a industrial complex, like whatever. But when you get into, you know, millions and millions of dollars and a property is marketed and exposed it's you know it's exposed to the market and then and then the bidders or the people who want it part of their process in in vying for the property of course it comes down to you know well who's willing to pay the most but there is due diligence done on the part of the seller that where like the buyer has to prove to the seller that they're financially capable of pulling this deal off and there's things that are done to verify that. And that's just standard practice. Because, you know, 
someone who's, imagine someone who's selling a $100 million strip mall, or, or even call it a, 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 go smaller, go $10 million industrial complex. The last thing they want to do is get intertwined with somebody that can't financially pull the deal off. Right. And so it's just normal for the buyer to be revealing what would be deemed, you know, personal information as part of the verification process. It's almost like you're trying out or applying to be able to buy the property. That is standard practice in, in uh, commercial real estate with larger deals. Of course, smaller deals, you know, it's not as common or necessary. But what I think, I guess what I'm, what I'm getting at is that as the stakes get larger in, in residential real estate, you know, you live in the greater Vancouver market and prices are different than Southern Manitoba or Southern Saskatchewan, perhaps that becomes more common. And, and think of it from this perspective, if you're a buyer, and you're more than capable of buying something and you're bidding on a property that's, you know, let's say two and a half million dollars or something like that. And a seller says, hey, are you capable? Can you show us that you're capable? If you are capable, are you going to be offended by that? I don't think you are. Right. right? Like you're only going to be offended if you're not capable. But if you are capable, you just go, hey, you know what? Like, I mean, maybe not everybody would answer this way, but I would think the answer would be, hey, great question. Totally understand the question happy to show you how capable we are. And here it is. Yeah. I don't know. That's what I, 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 maybe not everybody, maybe some people listen to this and go, that's garbage. I wouldn't respond that way. But I think that those that are capable would never be offended by the question. Right. Which is really, really actually interesting because I think that those who may be capable also might be offended by the question or not offended, but maybe apprehensive to share that they may be capable. Yeah. Um, if they're on that line, which again, will actually just give the advantage to people in the market who have more money or, or, or more means than, mm-hmm. than the next person, which might again, hurt more so a first time home buyer than a seasoned, you know, investor or something along those lines. Yeah. But yeah, it's definitely, definitely interesting. And maybe that is the way that things end up going in, in our market. I mean, do you, you might see it more than I do. I, I don't see a lot of deals, firm deals collapsing. I never have in my whole real estate deal, uh, real estate uh, well, career. Well, here's, here's the thing. They don't, no deal collapses in an inflating market because by the time the property is closing, the property is worth more than the offer right. number on the page. So right. the, the, the time where we become exposed is when the market turns, right? And... When the market turns, when you're in that environment, you get people caught in contracts that they don't like. Or by market turning, I mean all of a sudden, you know, maybe something happens in the lending world where someone's doing a deal in January, they're closing in April, and there's a shift in the lending world, and all of a sudden now it's not what they thought it was going to be, right? Yeah. So, yeah, it, it, it's, I've been through it before. I mean, I'm not trying to say that I've been through this before, but I've been through a market turn before, and there's a lot of guys, you know, a lot of people in our brokerage who have been through more market turns than me. I've just lived through one significant one, which was the financial crisis and, you know, 2008 and 9 and 10. And, you know, there was, all of a sudden, these situations creep up out of nowhere, right? You would have never thought it could happen and then boom. And then you got deals that all of a sudden aren't as airtight as you thought they were. And now the difference is though, the stakes today are way different than what they were in 2009. 2009, you know, you could buy a Whatever, you buy a beautiful home in, in, in Willoughby for 500 grand or 600 grand. And today yeah. that home in Willoughby is 1.8. So the stakes are, are bigger and there's more money on the line. And I mean, we've, we've crossed a line already 
crossed the lines may be the wrong way to put it, but, but we've gone into a zone where it's totally normal for a seller to say, you know what, I got, you know, I got 20 offers in front of me. I want to see pictures of your family, your dog. I want to know about your kids. I want everyone to write me a letter and send me this and send me that. And we got like, that is part of a verification process, right? And we see yeah. examples of people doing deals with buyers where they're maybe not even maximizing their money and they're waiting some of their decision on what the family looks like. 100%. Right? So we've, 100%. All, we've already gone outside the bounds of normal things for people to make decisions. And this is just possibly another way. It's another measuring stick that I think also could be, you know, categorized as doing a great job in protecting the seller. But it would be new and you'd probably get some pushback doing it, I imagine. Yeah. yeah I, I, find that, I find that just a really interesting concept. And yeah, if that's something that we're going to see more often and yeah, what kind of pushback would come as soon as it's the norm, it'll just be the way that it is. But yeah, mm -hmm. when it's first introduced. Yeah. Hey, we've yeah, come, you, we, we've come yeah. full circle. I'm, or did you have, I, 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 I don't want, I want to be mindful of your time. So I, I don't want to take too much more. Did I cut off one last thought there? No, I, I, I was just going to say in closing about that, that conversation about if you were to be working for a seller, could you potentially work, do your seller a, a miss? A favor by trying to introduce something like that where you want more information from the buyer to protect mm. your seller and it actually backfires and <laughs> you have buyers who actually say you know what like i'm i'm rescinding my offer like or we're not even going to put on an offer you guys are, are diving too deep and walk away i don't know really that's how you want to end the conversation you want to just cast a seat of doubt into everything you just talked about in the last 15 yeah. minutes yeah. that's amazing yeah yeah. Totally. Well, well, yeah, totally. Point well taken. I mean, like these things are not, uh, these are, these are complex issues. And, um, this is why I wanted to have you on and talk about these things because I knew you'd be an awesome dance partner. You're incredibly well thought out, well-spoken, very intelligent. And I know that you do an incredible job for your people. I've referred people to you in the past because you know, you, you operate in a world outside of mine and anytime I've ever had clients work with you, uh, they say you're fantastic. So thank you for sharing your brain and your ideas and your time. And, um, yeah, I sincerely appreciate it. Oh, thank you for the kind words and thanks for having me on. It was, it was a ton of fun. Cool. We'll, uh, we'll see each other soon. All right. Thanks, thanks Andrew. Take care. You too. Bye. See you.